Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and you're listening to the 10 Adventures podcast. We are more than just a travel company. We are a community of active explorers who have been inspired by the outdoors. Join me as I sit down with real people to talk about their most epic adventures on this incredible planet. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Today we are talking about an epic journey, specifically the bike tour from Alaska to Argentina. But we are also talking about something more, about what it is possible to accomplish after you retire. Here to talk is Bob Fletcher, who has spent his retirement exploring the world under his own power. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm great. I'm very thankful to be here with you, Richard. Uh, so I stumbled upon uh, your blog, and um, I think it's just incredible. So you turned 80 in two, 2022. And so like most 80-year-olds, you decided to cycle 15,000 kilometers from Fairbanks, Alaska to, to Panama City. And then the following year, here in 2023, uh, you finished the job and cycled from Cartagena, Colombia to Ushuaia in Argentina. And uh, I find that super inspirational. And my first question is, is what's your secret of being so healthy and being so active uh, as you age? I really don't have any uh, secret. It's probably in the DNA somewhere that uh, needs to be explored. But it was just a case of me saying, gee, I made uh, or I'm going to get to 80 next year. And I should do something to celebrate my 80th birthday because I I really thought I'd never make it to 80. Uh, but I did. So I came up with that idea to ride an electric bike from uh North Pole, Alaska, and there is a North Pole, Alaska, it's a small city outside of Fairbanks, down to Panama, and it kind of expanded from there, and it grew, it morphed into something that maybe I'm going to be doing for the whole decade of the 80s, and along the way, I picked up a Guinness's Book of World Records for the longest uh, motorized bicycle ride, a journey. And that was accomplished by getting to Panama um, in 2022. It was just a way of celebrating my 80th birthday. It had nothing to do with uh, living the good lifestyle or anything, although I've traveled the world on my bike and uh, I've cycled in something like 29 different countries right now. So I want to get into your journey in a little bit, but I just want to go back and maybe describe your background. You know, are you some sort of superhuman? athlete who's been doing this stuff all your life uh or is you know are you just a regular person like the rest of us i'm like the rest of everybody that's listening to your podcast here richard uh just an ordinary guy uh i always loved sports i played every sport there is uh from baseball hockey football sailing golf you name it uh, skiing uh, in fact, one time my son said, Dad, you should get a tattoo, but it should be a sleeve of every sport that you've played. And I didn't follow him up on that at all, but uh, it's just an indication that I wasn't particularly good at anything, but I liked doing everything. And uh, cycling was one thing that I seemed to have some talent at. And that talent is being able to sit on a bicycle seat for eight or 10 hours a day and that's about all the talent I have. I'm not a super athlete. Maybe I have some talent of 
slowly by slowly, one step at a time, one kilometer at a time. Uh, let's do 10 more kilometers and then another 10. And then pretty soon the, the ride is finished and I could take a break. But pretty ordinary guy. I spent my life uh, as an educator, 30 years with the Edmonton Public School Board and a small couple of times in Australia teaching in Sydney and being a principal in Wollongong, Australia as well. So nothing out of the ordinary, just a guy that likes to participate in sports and keep active. And once you retired, you really took to doing some some big adventures. Uh, do you want to maybe describe some of the other trips you did once you retired? Uh, right. They, uh, there's a number of trips, but a couple of things uh, took place at that uh, time after retirement. After retirement, I decided that I needed to be active. I needed to be doing something. And I did start uh, a small little business taking golfers to Australia to golf in the, in the Canadian winter, which is their summer down there. And I did that for about eight years. Then my wife got uh, diagnosed as Alzheimer's. And that, that put an end to that. And uh, she passed away uh, 11 years ago, uh, this coming June. And she always liked to travel. And she taught me how to travel way back. Uh, in 1968, we made our first trip around the world. Uh, at her suggestion, we went to Australia and continued around. So with those things in mind, a lot of the adventures before her death were together with her. After her death, it became a solo journey. Uh, I did some things in memory of her, like walking the Camino de Santiago and dedicating my certificate to her. She loved the book Kilimanjaro, so I decided I'd better climb Kilimanjaro and dedicate that to her as well. So the first part of a lot of my journeys were in memory of her and also because she trained me in wanting to be an adventure-seeking person and to travel the world as well. Uh, so over the years, uh, so I've cycled in countries such as India, I've cycled uh, from 2015 from Anchorage, Alaska to Mexico City, I climbed Kilimanjaro, as I mentioned. I rafted in the Nile River in Uganda. I climbed uh, Mount Fuji. Cycled in Australia. The uh, walked the Camino. Many, many different things that just uh, seem to keep me active. And I take off and do some other adventure. I prefer to do it on a bicycle seat, but not always. Oh, what a great way to honor you know honor the legacy of your wife and stay active and explore the world in a different way. You know, a lot of people, you know, as soon as they retire, they almost, you know, get a place on a cruise and they explore the world, you know, on a cruise ship. And you kind of took the different approach and explored the world under your own power. Uh, and definitely, you know, that's how I want to live my retirement is exactly what you've done. And that leads into uh, this big trip you just did. And so for people that can't even visualize you know, what this route might be like, how, you know, can you explain it briefly in the, you know, almost a country by country level where the route goes? If people are thinking of how do I ride from Alaska to, to Argentina? Well, it does take some planning. The first thing that entered my mind is because in 2015 that, uh, we did that trip from Anchorage, Alaska to Mexico city. 
So I didn't want to take the same route. So I wanted to take a different route down. For Alaska, Yukon, it's pretty much the same route. There's only one major road up there, so you got to ride it no matter where you're going. But then I decided I would head over and do the West Coast, uh, head to cross to Vancouver and then down the United, uh, West Coast of the United States. Instead of going down the Baja where the traditional cyclists that are doing this trip, and there's a number of them that do it every year, uh, they go down the Baja and take the ferry over to Mazatlan. I went across the top of Mexico and then down through the Sonora Desert uh, through the area that most people would say the cartels uh, control the area and don't go there and made my way down that side of Sea uh, of uh, California, uh, Gulf of California and the Sea of Cortez to Mazatland and then we cut over to south of Mexico City. We didn't go there because I'd been there before, and then we made our way down through Oaxaca onto, into Guatemala and from Central America to Panama. So that was pretty well the, the route. Uh, I sat down and I looked at a lot of maps. Uh, I do my planning by looking. I wanted to do an average of 100 kilometers a day. Is there a hotel? Is there a campground or something at that point? If there isn't, then okay, is there one at 120 or 115 or 95? And the route gets planned, and I'm different than most of the bike packers who are, they travel free. They don't have a schedule. They don't know where they're going to be the next week or something like that. They don't know how long they're going to stay in each place. When I travel, I have a five-month itinerary, and I try and stick to it as a day-by-day -day itinerary because I have a team and people cycling with me, so I need to be at different places at different times for them to join us or to celebrate my 80th birthday. I couldn't miss my birthday party uh, by being late, uh, in uh, Newport, Oregon. So I always have this time re restraints on me when I travel. And, you know, interesting. So you talked about you, do, you did it with a team. So what did the team provide in terms of doing the route? Was it like a support van that would carry luggage and do things like that? I had a, a great team. I had a, a young team. I had a team that covered uh, different countries. I had Yoda from uh, Greece who did the management of the, everything, worked on the books, did the hotel reservations, did driving. I had uh, Kim from Denmark who was a photographer and the drone operator who did the northern part. I had Kyle, who was a media person from the United States who uh, ran drones and movie cameras and 360s and did a lot of the photography work. I had Joanna from Colombia, who was my Spanish-speaking person who uh, got me through all the border crossings and helped a great deal. And I had uh, Wayne from uh, Edmonton, who rode with me almost every day as we uh, traveled the highways and byways going down to Panama. So it was a great team, and they, I had a support vehicle, a Dodge Grand Caravan that was uh, quite large and could carry a lot. I slept in there every night that we camped, and uh, the team towed a tent trailer where the rest of the people slept in the tent trailer unless we were doing uh, Airbnbs or hotels. 
and we did a lot of that once we crossed into Mexico where accommodation was much cheaper. So it was a well-supported team. I rode without any luggage or anything on my bike like a bike packer does. Uh, they're amazing with how much they carry and they ride solo. Uh, so I went with a support team, a sport vehicle, and it worked out really well. For South America, I used the same support van. I used Joanna again for my Spanish-speaking uh, personal driver, and my wife Gloria accompanied me as a manager and hotel booking person. And um, the three of us did uh, South America without a tent trailer. Wow, what an expedition. You planned this all yourself. And uh, did you find there were days where you just didn't want to get on the bike and, and go to the next place you'd planned sure. to be months before? Yes, for sure. Uh, it's kind of like work. You know, there's some days you say, oh, I don't want to get out of bed and Monday morning, go to work, that kind of thing. But you do and uh, you get to work and the day ends up pretty good. There's lots of days so. Maybe I can sleep in another hour before I get on the bike and go. But no, our daily routine was sort of wake up around 7, put the coffee pot on, have some breakfast, uh, get organized, uh, probably on the road around 8.30, uh, stop for a, a coffee break about 10.30, uh, lunch around 1 o'clock, another coffee break later on. And then about four o'clock, a beer break, and finally pedal into the campground or hotel, and uh, the team would have the, everything set up for us. And, and then the evening was uh, enjoy your dinner and a little activity exploring the area, and then early to bed, early to rise. You you gave the route down to Panama City, but from uh, Cartagena, what was the route down to Ushuaia? What countries did you go through? We went through obviously uh, Colombia, and Colombia was the most difficult of all the countries to go through because we climbed in that country something like 40,000 uh, meters of climbing, which was almost one-third of the total climbing of the whole five and a half months that we were on the road. So we went through Colombia, then into Ecuador, Ecuador into Peru, Peru into Bolivia, Bolivia into Argentina, Argentina, Argentina into Chile, Patagonia, back into Argentina, back into Chile, and finally we finished in Yotzuela, in the bottom of Argentina. Every country was unique and different. Uh, we went through the jungles and the rainforests of Colombia and Ecuador. We went through the three weeks of nothing but sand dunes and sand in Peru as we cycled down the coast there. Uh, we went through high altitudes of 45, 4,800 meters through Bolivia. And then you get into Chile and Argentina that are fairly modern countries and uh, more European in nature. And uh, you get back to uh, restaurants and wine and uh, fine dining. And and then you get into the, the desolate countries of Argentina where the wind blows at 80 kilometers an hour and knocks you off the bike as you try and go through this flat land to get down to the end of the world, as they say. Uh, so the countries varied, the scenery varied, the people were the same everywhere, excellent, great people, uh, never had any problems in any of the 15 countries that we passed through at all. And 
I can't can't imagine that anywhere else than North and South America where the people were so hospitable, generous, uh, interested, want to talk to you, want to know about you, and uh, want to get their picture taken with you. It was it was an awesome journey. Hey everyone, this is Richard, and I just want to take 30 seconds to let you know that if you are enjoying these stories and are interested in embarking on your own adventure, then head over to 10adventures.com. At 10 Adventures, our specialty is booking private and custom active holidays. Jump straight from dreaming to doing without any of the hassle of travel planning in between. Join thousands of other travelers who have already booked with 10 Adventures to destinations in over 85 countries and experience more of what our planet has to offer while making memories that'll last a lifetime. Now back to the podcast. I'm interested... When you're riding, are you riding on major highways? Are there a good network of secondary roads? Are there, you know, if you're on busy roads, is there a good shoulder? Uh, what can people expect? Obviously, it's going to change country to country, but maybe give an overview for, for people who are interested in this trip. In uh, Alaska, Yukon, northern British Columbia, through to Vancouver, it was uh, on highways, but there was very little traffic, uh, good shoulders in most cases. Uh, from... Uh, United States on the West Coast. The uh, coast is amazing through Oregon and California. And it's a busy highway because it's a tourist season and everything. But I had a sign on the back of my bike that said, uh, in that case, uh, Alaska to Panama, and people would honk and wave. And they didn't seem to bother, uh, be annoyed that I was slowing them down. Uh, there was a lot of traffic and a lot of up and downs there. The, the roads are good. In Canada, the United States, excellent. In to Mexico, the roads stayed pretty good. We had a choice of going on the free roads or going on the toll roads. And we ended up doing a lot of toll roads after a while because we tried to follow established bike routes that would, different apps would take us on and they just led us nowhere. And we ended up sitting on the side of the road debating, do we go back and turn around or do we try and keep going? And we ended up taking a lot of four-lane freeways with wide shoulders and a lot of traffic. Uh, as we got further down, we stayed a lot of time on the Pan American Highway. Uh, so there was a lot of traffic. In Mexico, we had a lot of rough roads, speed bumps, cobblestones, potholes, uh, the poor bikes took a beating as we hit all that rough roads. South America, the roads were probably better than in Mexico and South America, but we had to stay on established highways. There just isn't any paved country lanes and everything like that. Uh, there's a little more of that in Chile and Argentina, but uh, for the rest of it, and it's major roads are the only paved roads and uh, I like to stay on the paved roads. Uh, I'm not like some of the bike backers that take off and enter the gravel and the dirt roads and explore that way. And and I'm really interested in your choice of an e-bike. And you mentioned you hold the Guinness record for the longest e-bike journey. And I haven't met anyone who's done, I think, more than maybe a two or three week e-bike bike tour. Can you tell me a little bit about you know, why you chose an e-bike, how it performed, any tips for people who are thinking of this type of trip on an e-bike? 
Well, uh, my history before e-bikes was, oh, I'm going to ride my road bike, I'm going to ride my mountain bike till I can't ride anymore, and I'm not going to take up an e-bike. That's sort of like cheating. Uh, but I did a, a tour from Amsterdam to Rome, and on that particular tour, uh, three things sort of caught my attention. One was... Uh, on the first couple of days, it's a Sunday and a Saturday and a Sunday, and we're riding in Amsterdam or riding in the Netherlands. And I noticed a lot of elderly people, seniors, out biking. Oh, there's a nice husband and wife biking, and I noticed they were on e bikes and enjoying uh, the nature and getting out into the uh, countryside. Later on, I was huffing and puffing up a mountain in Switzerland. When I heard a noise and I looked to my left and a lady come by on an e-bike and uh, she wasn't huffing and puffing, uh, wow, that's kind of interesting. Uh, she's not working as hard as I am. And then the third thing was uh, we were in Italy, I think, and uh, I heard a noise and I was battling a headwind. And the noise was uh, another lady on an e-bike but right behind her drafting was her husband on a road bike and she was providing <laughs> the uh, lead bike so he could draft behind and they left me in the dust. So I got thinking, well, maybe there's something to do with a deep bike. The next thing that happened, Richard, was that I used to conduct uh, cycle tours through uh, Costa Rica. We did about six of them for friends and people around the world that came down. And Somewhere around the third or fourth one, I got a request from two people. Do you have an e-bike to rent? Because uh, my wife likes to uh, ride an e-bike and cycle with me. The other fellow said, I have bad knees. I need an e-bike. So I went and bought two inexpensive e-bikes in San Jose, Costa Rica. And I spent a month riding them. And I thought, oh, they're... They're pretty good. I kind of enjoy this. Uh, but after a month, I thought, well, I'm still getting exercise. That's good. But I went back to my road bike and my mountain bike. And I continued on with that for a while. And then I had an accident. And I crashed and I broke my hip and broke three rims. And uh, ended up that I had to cancel the tour in uh, Chile. And I had to stay off uh, on crutches and wheelchairs for about six weeks, I think it was. So I had a tour lined up in Germany from Frankfurt out to Czech Republic. And I'm in no way can I do this because I'm out of shape. I better rent an electric bike. So I rented an electric bike for that tour, and I did about a 1,000 kilometers on a two-week tour. And I never went back to a regular bike after that, although I still have them. I just uh, enjoyed it. I came back to Costa Rica, and I bought a really good quality electric bike, and I've been riding an electric bike ever since. So that's the electric bike story. How did I get on the one I rode from Alaska down? Uh, Evelo Bicycles uh, approached me and asked if they could uh, supply a bike. And we talked for a while and they understood that I knew something about electric bikes. Uh, they understood that I 
ridden long distances before. So they became my major sponsor. They provided us with uh, two bikes, the Avello uh, Atlas, uh, so uh, my uh, riding partners could ride that, my team could ride that, or ride with me, and uh, lots of spare parts and sports, and they've been great for both parts of the trip. They've been with me the whole way uh, from North America and South America. Uh, so electric bikes uh, are something that you can tour on. Uh, I'm not the first person to ride an electric bike all the way from uh, Alaska to Argentina. A Facebook friend of mine, uh, Gustavo Sabatini from uh, Slovenia, he beat me by a month. He started a month earlier than I did in Anchorage, Alaska, and he rode uh, his bike all the way down to the bottom of However, he was only 71 when he completed the trip, and I was 81 <laughs> when I He claims the first person to do it. I claim the oldest person to do it uh, for, for the record. Um, he carried three batteries with him and didn't have any support vehicle. I had uh, batteries, but I had the support vehicle, and I have an inverter in the van. And so when I deplete one battery... They can put it on the uh, charger in the van, and I could put the new battery in, and we can keep going for long periods of time, uh, just switching the batteries around. If we didn't have any uh, plug-ins in the hotels, uh, campgrounds, I took a generator for the Alaska Yukon Park, where we could uh, wild camp at night and run the generator rather than the car uh, to charge the batteries overnight. That's basically how we did it and how uh, we got all the way down. Incredible, incredible. Uh, looking back on the trip, what are the best bits? Are there, you know, most people can't commit to doing the entire trip uh, themselves, but are there places that people should consider and put on their bucket list of just wonderful, you know, destinations for riding? There's a lot of them, a lot of them. Uh, Alaska, Yukon, Northern British Columbia is, is awesome. The Pacific coast of the United States was amazing. I really enjoyed that. It stands out as something that everybody should try and do that. And there's a lot of organized tours that do that um, as well. You could do it on your own. You'll meet a lot of cyclists. It's a very busy cycle route. If you're uh, bike packing, you get free camping at most of the state parks and everything if you're a hiker or a biker. Mexico was the most outstanding country that I enjoyed the most. The people there were the most friendly, the most hospitable, most generous. They would stop us. They would give us food. They would give us water. They would give us money. They would give us tequila. They would give us uh, cerveza. Uh, they even offered us a big bag of marijuana one time, and we had to say, no, 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 that looks a little dangerous <laughs> to be carrying a big sack of marijuana. Uh, the culture there, the music there, the food, the colonial cities, magic cities, the Day of the Dead was a great celebration that we had such a good time in Oaxaca. I love Mexico. I've been there many times, and uh, I hope to return there someday. The rest of the places, uh, they're all great places. Uh, if you want to see uh, beautiful countries like uh, Colombia, be prepared to do a lot of, a lot of climbing. Uh, 
40,000 meters in one month is a lot of climbing. Um, if you like, Peru was a, a country that got two extremes in Peru. You've got Machu Picchu, you've got Cusco, you've got uh, the beautiful oasis at Ica, you've got Nascar lines, you've got uh, decent city in Peru, you've got so many cultures that live in the northern desert. Everything there to look at, but you've got great poverty and you've got uh, litter and garbage all along the roads and you've got these two things that are competing for your attention. You've got great things and at the same time you've got some things that aren't uh, the best in the world. So Peru was so different, but that doesn't stop me from recommending all those great places to everybody there as well. Uh, and certainly in the wine of Chile and Argentina, uh, it's worth traveling down here just for that. <laughs> um, usually when I talk to people who have done, you know, big journeys, they're usually younger and, you know, maybe more impressionable. They haven't done big trips before. They're seeing a lot of things for the first time. For you, you've done so much already. How do you think this trip changed you or impacted you? I don't know. That's kind of a hard, hard question. When I think about it, I think I don't think I changed at all. I think I just get up and I go for a bicycle ride of 100 kilometers and then I do it all again the next day. <laughs> uh, because I travel, I've been in maybe over 100 countries, uh, so I'm used to foreign cultures, but I'm always being reinforced that when I travel that the people I meet and the cultures I go through, whether it's a different language or a different religion or whatever, the people are so awesome. They're like everybody else in the, the world. They're raising families. They're making ends meet. They uh, want to be happy, everything. And it just reinforces all my beliefs. And I've always believed that if you're traveling and you're being exposed to all these things, it's very tough to be a bigot and a racist. And uh, you need to get out and see the world and experience the people that are there. And sometimes you find out that what you're seeing is not what you, in real life, is not what you're seeing on television. That I expected to see migrants walking the highways heading for the United States to climb over the wall and all that. And we didn't see it. We saw migrants in a few locations and we chatted with them, but and their life stories were different. And, and they weren't all from Central America, but most of the people we met were migrants were from Africa and a few from China. And I didn't realize that that was, uh, if you're from Somalia or Ethiopia, that these people get on a plane and they head over to Brazil or Ecuador because there's no no system set out to stop those people from coming. And then they turn around and they walk thousands of kilometers through dense jungles and over mountains and across the Darien Gap. And they're trying to get to the promised land so they can send money back to their families. And their stories were heartbreaking when we talked to them. But we didn't see them on the road, but we did see them in a few cities uh, as well. Now I've lost track of the original questions about how it changed me. <laughs> I, you, you answered it beautifully. And, and I think one one thing you learn traveling, and, and you said it, how similar we all are, no matter where we're from, what language we speak, what beliefs we have. 
as humans, we're more similar than we are different. And uh, that's what you, you know, I learn and it sounds like you learn as well uh, from these, from these big trips. My next question is most of our listeners are not in their eighties. Uh, a lot of them are in their thirties to fifties. You know, they might still be working a job or, you know, just starting to think about retiring. What advice do you have for them in terms of how to, how to live a life like you have? First, if I was going to speak to uh, people that were considering retirement, I would say you need something to be active. It doesn't have to be a sport. It could be a hobby. It could be writing a book. It could be uh, anything, woodworking, anything that is going to keep you active. You just can't sit and do nothing all day long. And even with having one thing, you need to maybe have a second thing as well to to uh, counteract the physical activity. For me, I have a physical activity riding the bike, but I have a mental activity as well, trying to learn Spanish, which I'm failing at desperately. But I also spend a lot of time during the day doing mental type of things like planning my next odyssey through Europe and working uh, with that. Uh, getting out and about uh, as well. So be active, but have at least a couple of things in your life that uh, helps you mentally and helps you physically as well. You know, Bob, you mentioned learning Spanish, and I think the most I've failed in my adult life is learning Spanish. I, I worked a little bit in Argentina, and I hired a private tutor, and for about two months, every day I'd wake up and I couldn't speak Spanish. And, you know, in life you don't fail 65 times in a row, uh, but it just wouldn't take. And I speak French, so Spanish is fairly similar. And it was really, really tough. And then just all of a sudden one day I could speak Spanish. And I don't know if that's normal for everybody, um, but it is. It's such a, it's so challenging to learn a second language once you're, you know, no longer in school because our brains are, I don't know, they're kind of set and, and in our lives, we don't fail very often, you know, and especially not day after day. So I sympathize with the challenge you're in and uh, hopefully your, your years comes a bit quicker than it did for me. Well, I've been at it for a long, long time and I'm afraid that learning the language and learning salsa dancing is just the hardest things I've ever done in life. And uh, it's really tough because I... It goes in one ear, and by the time I translate the first word, I've lost everything else. So uh, we speak a lot of Spanglish here in the house. <laughs> uh, it'll come. It'll come. It just I was the same way, and just one day, it, it just, I don't know how, it just, I woke up and I could do it. Um, last question is, you mentioned you're planning your next trip. What's next? What's your next big adventure? I've sort of started thinking, like, oh, if Apple can use the same system, iPhone 1, iPhone 12, iPhone 13, iPhone 14, I can do the same thing. So I did Octogenarian Odyssey 1, which is North America, Octogenarian Odyssey 2.0, South America, now Octogenarian 3.0 is Europe. We're going to ride uh, from Lisbon, Portugal, starting May the 1st, uh, over to, uh, well, we'll go through Portugal, Spain, Italy, uh, Croatia, Albania, Montenegro, Greece, uh, then into Turkey and a little bit of riding in Turkey and finish up around the uh, 
August uh, 19th. I plan to have my birthday, 82nd birthday in Istanbul this year. So that's uh, that's on the thing. We're using the same crew of my wife and Joanna as well and the same vehicle. That sounds incredible and a wonderful ride and lots of great wine. You're going to be going through lots of great wine growing territories. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Bob, I want to say thanks for coming on the show today. It's been really inspirational as well as really informative. And I think for a lot of people has let them consider maybe ways to do longer rides with their e-bikes um, and just sharing, you know, your passion for life and adventure. Uh, it's been great to have you on. May I say, Richard, that uh, if anybody there was interested, I did produce a book for the first octogenarian odyssey. Uh, I called it Trading the uh, Trading the Sofa for the Bicycle Seat. Uh, it's available in ebook on Apple and uh, Kindle, and it's available on Amazon as well in Canada and U.S. and around the world. They if the if you could put that in, that would be great. Uh, if anybody wanted to read about that part of the venture, I've got a second book coming out for South America out next summer as well. Uh, I don't know how you find the time, Bob. Uh, also, I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Uh, and also, if people just want to follow along, I know you have a website. Uh, can you maybe share what the website URL is? And I'm not sure if you do social media, but you know, lots of people like to follow on people on great journeys on Instagram or Facebook or things like that, that you can maybe share. Where I have the most followers is on my Facebook page. And to find it, I say you should go to uh, facebook.com forward slash B and B travel. That will take me to my, that'll take you to my personal Facebook page where I tend to post uh, pictures and uh, happens each day on the trip. I'm also under Instagram on Octo Odyssey, O-C-P-O-O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y. And my webpage is octoodyssey.com. I'll put links to all those in the show notes. And with that, that's the end of this episode. Thanks all for listening. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear more epic adventures on the 10 Adventures podcast. Start planning your own adventure by visiting us at 10adventures.com and listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you find your podcasts. Podcasts.